0: Early in V's career as a burgeoning harpist, she was offered her first opportunity to play in a Christmas musical that was produced and directed by a professional theater group. She joined two other exceptional instrumentalists, a keyboardist and a flutist, and played with them each evening for the duration of the production. When the production ended, the other instrumentalists came up to V, told her they liked her playing, and thanked her for playing with them. In parting, one of them finally confessed, When we found out that you were the harpist hired for the job, we thought, oh no, because we heard that you could be a difficult person to work with. But you know, you really aren't a... Insert expletive here. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 84th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. detail, historical context that puts you in the action. So, I'll keep this PG, but I think you get the idea. Until this incident, V wasn't aware that she had been vilified in the Arizona harpist community. We would later discover that V was well on her way to becoming the premier harpist throughout Arizona, much to the jealousy and insecurity of the other harpists in the area. And picking up with today's episode, we find Paul teaching to a growing crowd of people in an Athenian marketplace. Some philosophers have observed Paul to be encroaching on their territory and feel that something needs to be done about it. So what happens next? Well, tune in and find out. With that, let's get started. Othello! Ezio calls back from some 20 feet ahead. Are you coming or do we need to drag you along like a sack of potatoes? A bent over Othello wheezes. He then gestures at the impatient, wiry man ahead of him and does his best to catch up. I swear, Ezio says, walking with you is like moving in a funeral procession, except that, well, you're, well, not dead yet. Rolling his eyes, Othello retorts as he walks past a restless Ezio Oh, has his lordship found me to be lacking yet again? He catches his breath as sweat drips down his cheeks. Maybe you need to fill the shoes of Caesar himself. I'm sure he'll give you a warm welcome. You should go check it out. Neither sarcasm nor evidently any form of physical fitness is becoming of you, Ezio counters. He then wonders, Caesar Ezio does have a nice ring to it. Observing the crowd ahead, Othello sees two or three men clustered around at the fringes. Noticing two of them to be fellow Stoics, Othello waves and walks over to them. "'Xander! Basil!' he says to acknowledge the two men nearby. "'Hello, Othello,' Xander replies. "'Come to watch the show?' "'Well, yes,' Othello replies as Ezio joins in the huddle. "'Hello, my Stoic friends,' Ezio offers.' "'Hi, Ezio,' Xander snidely remarks. "'How great it is to see you!' Rolling his eyes at the less-than-courteous greeting, Ezio looks around at their surroundings and abruptly says, "'Well, we have a nice-sized crowd here today, gentlemen. "'Is our illustrious teacher present?' Xander smiles at his opportunity and says, "'Either he is, or the crowd is waiting on pins and needles to hear you opine.' ''Oh, wait, you can only see their backsides,'' he says with a smirk. ''Yes, Xander,'' Ezio drily quips, ''thank you for the reminder of why I try to avoid you at all costs. Isn't there a rock nearby, so that you may creep back under from whence you came?'' Interrupting their repartee, Basil points out, ''Look, he's brought two more with him.'' The four peer around the assembled bodies to get a better look at Paul, "'Yes,' Ezio observes as he furrows his brow. "'What is he talking about today?' "'I'm not sure. "'If you two would be quiet, I might be able to hear,' "'an irritated Basil replies as he listens in. "'I keep hearing something about a strange deity becoming a man,' he finally says. "'Othello nods his head and interjects, "'Yes, yes, that's exactly what I heard the other day when I came to check him out.' "'Xander shakes his head and asks, "'Look,' "'This appears to be the idle babbling of a man who's not right in the head. "'Get him to the Areopagus and have him share his profundity before a much smarter crowd. "'Once they dismiss him, he'll go his way and we'll get back to our normal lives. "'Have either of you sat down to talk with him?' "'Ezio and Othello shake their heads when Ezio responds. "'No, but that is why we have returned,' he says. "'We would like a few words with the man.' Oh, no doubt your charm will win him over, Xander says. You're such a winsome and compelling figure. Ezio gives a scornful look back at Xander. There it is, Xander teases. There's the Ezio I know and love. Stop it, both of you, Othello demands. You're acting like a couple of drama queens. Yes, you're right, Xander responds to Othello. He then addresses Ezio. "'Well, what are you waiting for, princess?' Xander then pats Ezio on the head and moves toward the crowd. As a mob of students press up against them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy look at one another and marvel at the level of interest. Calling out from the crowd, a voice says, "'This is very fascinating. "'So exactly how do you verify that what you are saying has any notion of validity?' Taken aback, Paul looks up from those in front of him to see an individual slowly approach. I've seen the risen Lord myself, Paul responds and begins to trace back to his previous line of thought. Clearing his throat, the man shouts out for all to hear So, was this an apparition, a vision, or did the two of you sit down for some wine and conversation? The crowd laughs at this. Unfazed by the question, Paul looks at the man and asks, Do you ask in genuine interest, or do you simply wish to mock? Suddenly, sensing the tension, the crowd divides, leaving a direct path between the two men. The man looks around to see that he has gained the attention of the crowd. We're reasonable people here, and I suspect you are not from here, since you come with some fairly foreign ideas, he says. Let's just say I ask with a manner of protectiveness." "'Yes, yes,' Paul responds dismissively. "'I am aware of your business interests.' "'Please forgive my intrusive friend,' Ezio speaks up as he steps next to Xander. "'He can be a bit off-putting.' Xander shoots Ezio a warning. "'Ezio gestures to further quiet the man next to him.' You've had your moment in the sun, Icarus, he whispers. Don't you find it ironic to advertise being a man who celebrates himself as being free from passion, only to find yourself, well, here, in front of everyone, stuck in your age and looking ever the fool. How embarrassing. Ezio quickly glances at an elf, fuming Xander, and turns back to Paul. Clearing his throat, he says... These, indeed, are very different ideas that you have been sharing with this crowd over the past several days. A crowd that seems very interested in what you have to offer. As you might have already discovered, we're a curious bunch here in Athens. In fact, we have a place where we go just to share such new ideas. Ezio looks over Paul's shoulder and points up to the Parthenon a few hundred feet away. You can see the Acropolis right over there, but look to the hill to the right. Do you see that rock outcropping just above those buildings? That's where philosophers and thought leaders regularly gather to share their thoughts. I have little doubt that they would benefit from hearing you. Would you consider joining us there? Guiding the three up the steps, etched into the rock, Ezio explains, This big piece of rock is where it all happens here in Athens. This is not only where philosophers, religious, and thought leaders come alike to share their ideas. This is also the place where civic matters are discussed and debated. This is also the place where court is held. Justices will hear and rule on criminal and civil cases alike. There is no telling what each day might bring here on the hallowed hill of Ares. They take their final steps to reveal the craggy top of the rock and the city beyond— Paul looks around to see clusters of people gathered in different locations on the rock. "'Wow!' he quietly exclaims to both Timothy and Silas. "'This is different, isn't it?' The two nod without saying anything. Ezio continues with his tour. "'Watch your step, gentlemen. It's easy to get your sandals stuck between these rocks,' he says. Ezio steps carefully and finds a suitable place to position himself before continuing. "'Just over there, as you can see, court is in session.' There's always one or two judges available throughout each day to rule on cases. Ezio waves at the judge, who acknowledges him and gets back to the case in front of him. That's Dionysius, Ezio says. Some hate it when he presides. Say he goes too slowly. He pauses for a moment. Personally, I like the fact that he doesn't rush to judgment, but carefully works through all the angles. Hearing laughter within earshot, Silas perks up and asks, What's going on over there? Ezio points over a small ridge and smiles. Yes, come with me. That's where I wanted to take you. Stepping up towards the top of the ridge, the four come upon a large cluster of individuals seated around a central figure who has their attention. Now this group, Ezio explains, this is the group I was telling you about. Athenians are always curious about new thought, so as you can see, this group gets pretty large. Timothy whispers into Silas's ear, "'Do people actually work here?' "'Hearing Timothy's whisper, Ezio smiles and responds, "'Some do?' "'Yes,' he says. "'Some are sponsored or commissioned.' "'Commissioned?' Timothy asks. "'Yes,' Ezio says. "'They're paid to be philosophers or thought leaders.' "'Really?' Timothy asks. "'Yes,' Ezio says while looking critically at Timothy. "'Oh, and please do educate me. "'What do you do for work? "'Are you here as a merchant?' Paul smiles over at Timothy and raises his eyebrows. ''Yes, Timothy, what do you do for work?'' he asks. Hm, Ezio smirks and says. ''These thought leaders shape the culture here in Athens and beyond. Even the Romans can't think of anything new, so they steal their ideas from these philosophical bums. Small wonder they're in charge of anything worthwhile, the savage thugs.'' Catching himself, Ezio looks at the three and asks, ''Well, shall we join these societal leeches?'' Paul pats Timothy on the shoulder as they move up onto the ridge. Well, we're going to stop here for today. Teaching in both the synagogues as well as in the marketplaces throughout Athens, Paul grows his audience as he shares the resurrection of the God-man Jesus. Paul's witness struck a chord with this audience from the marketplace, but those in the Agoras weren't the thought leaders of Athens or the known world. No, the thought leaders sat and discussed life issues at the Areopagus or the hills of Ares. You may know it as Mars Hill. So upon hearing such a foreign set of ideas about the God-man Jesus, professional philosophers such as the Stoics or Epicureans took note of Paul's preaching. These thought leaders, these philosophers, were partly curious, but they were also partly concerned. On one hand, these philosophers wanted to better understand what Paul was teaching. First, he was advocating the workings of a monotheistic God, which would have contrasted from common polytheistic thinking in the day. Only one God? How absurd is that, many would have thought. While understanding that the gods were beyond the grasp of humanity, Greeks believed these gods to be faulty and limited in their scope and capability. Furthermore, Greeks saw the gods as disinterested in the affairs of humanity. So to hear that God would become a man, that would be the ultimate condescension. How weak and needy must a god be to concern himself with the affairs of human rabble? As an important side note, some of these philosophers were naturalists and didn't really believe in the polytheistic beliefs held by the general populace. Yes, receiving a fair amount of social pressure to honor the variety of deities out there, these philosophers would play nice and give homage to whatever god that needed to be worshipped at any given time. Reception, or business transaction, or bathhouse, etc. But it doesn't mean they actually believed in them. While Stoics might have attributed the governing force of the Logos to Zeus as its creator, we might refer to this concept as reason or wisdom, not all Stoics gave much attention to the origin of the Logos. They were much more interested in the way how rational and objective thinking played out in everyday life. Furthermore, while Stoics might have passed on the hyper-religious folklore that permeated the minds of most of the citizenry of the day, they were quite happy with the progress they had made, especially with now how many Greeks had adopted the tenets of Stoicism for living out their regular lives. Like many of us, the Greeks left room for both religious and naturalistic thinking, as this was commonplace throughout the Roman Empire. As another important side note, the Apostle John captured the attention of those who subscribed to Stoic thinking by attributing the Lagos to the God who became man. John wrote about how all the wisdom of God had been incarnated in this single human being and has flowed out from him. You might know it in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, or Lagos, and the Word Logos was with God, and the word Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And that's again John 1, 1 through 3. For those stoic-minded individuals who saw the Logos as something graced from Zeus to humanity, John definitely turned heads with this writing, saying that all credit goes to the God of the Jews, who sent his one and only Son to redeem humankind. And just as John was turning heads later on when he wrote his gospel, Paul is garnering the attention of those who uphold Zeus in high esteem. If Zeus isn't real, then the Logos couldn't have flowed out from him. So while Paul references Zeus in his Mars Hill sermon, we'll address that next time, he uses these references of Zeus as a springboard to introduce the God of the Jews, who supernaturally proved his existence by raising the man Jesus from the dead. For the Stoics who had made a living from their teaching and training, can you imagine how they might feel threatened by Paul's sudden arrival and teachings at the marketplace? Paul's ideas likely infringed upon the livelihood of these existing philosophers who had lost some of their own followers to Paul. Understandably, this wouldn't have set well for these philosophers. So what happens when we feel threatened by something we don't yet fully understand? Well, we tend to circle the wagons and become territorial. While some were immediately dismissive of Paul's teachings, his idle babblings, others were still curious to learn more about him. Furthermore, getting Paul in front of the scholars on Mars Hill would have allowed a greater level of scrutiny to be employed. They figured if anyone was able to poke holes in Paul's teachings, it would have been these guys. So both curiosity and territorialism seem to be the underlying motivations for getting Paul to speak up on Mars Hill. So let's bring this home. What are three unintended consequences that emerge within us when feeling threatened? Moreover, how do we do with it? Number one, we circle the wagons. When confronted with an unfamiliar idea, especially as it gains traction... We tend to bypass any perceived benefit and look immediately at what we stand to lose. As humans, our natural response when threatened is to protect against loss at all costs. Self-preservation and self-protection are at the forefront of human instinct. When anything that has been gained by us is now threatened such as business interests or retirement savings or relationships or family growth, much like the philosophers in Athens, the synagogues in Thessalonica, or the temple attendees and teachers back in Jerusalem who felt threatened by the teachings of Jesus. We will circle our wagons without regard to what God might be doing in any given circumstance. That said, we also have the Logos, the incarnation of all reason and wisdom into one man, that God-man Jesus. So when we see the world around us rapidly move away from the wisdom that sources from Jesus, we also may tend to circle the wagons again because we feel threatened by the possibility of loss. But we're not called to circle the wagons. We are called to be salt and light. We tend to vilify the threat. When we feel threatened, it's not uncommon to feel trapped in a corner. Anxiety goes up and so does our insecurity. Consequently, we may feel like the world is against us and that those around us wouldn't blink an eye if something terrible were to happen to us. So what do we do? We come out swinging. Or we run and hide to avoid the conflict altogether, often to become passive-aggressive in our approach. We simply want the conflict to go away, so we might give way to slander and say harmful things about those who threaten us. We use those who are often peacemakers as pawns and try to get them to side with us. And we will further vilify those who might see things differently and see them not only as enemies of us, but even enemies of God. Our mode of fighting, though, will eventually implode. It always does relationships are often soured when we vilify others eventually even the peacemakers around us will distance themselves which only fuels our future insecurities we might even find ourselves scheming to get rid of the perceived problem thinking through more elaborate plans to oust the individual or individuals who pose such threats but we're not called to vilify others we're called to be salt and light. Third, we don't see what God is doing. Let me just point to the obvious here. If we're obsessed with self-preservation, we simply cannot and will not see God at work within us or around us. We are too busy licking our wounds and focusing on our own losses to see God do anything of value. Only when we are salt and light will we then see what God is doing. So what is to be our response? How do we deal with our natural inclination to be self-preserving? Let's look no further than the words of the incarnate Lagos himself, Jesus, who keeps us focused on really what's important, the need to be under the blessing of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied." Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsify, and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they have persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? if it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works." Your desire to please your father. And in doing that, they're seeing you glorify your father, and they themselves are glorifying your father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 3 through 14. To add, may we also be in line with the thinking of David, the psalmist. Here's a guy who well understood how the world was truly out to get him. He was the man with all the power at the time, and when you hold a position of power, remember he was king, there were always going to be those who are gunning for you. It's easy to allow insecurity to get the best of us. So what do we do? We'll circle the wagons and we'll seek to vilify others, and in doing so, we will fail to see what God is up to and how he might make use of us. So what do we do in circumstances like these? Let's focus on not only the words of Jesus, but what David focuses on some 3,000 years ago. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. For your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I do not sit with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I shall wash my hands in innocence, and I will go about your altar. O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all of your wonders. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells do not take my soul away along with the sinners or nor my life with men of bloodshed in whose hands is a wicked scheme and whose right hand is full of bribes but as for me I shall walk in my integrity redeem me and be gracious to me my foot stands on a level place in the congregations I shall bless the Lord what was good for David is also good for us what was good for Jesus is also good for us Can I just encourage you to take some time with the psalm and the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 to help you and me to stand on level ground and trust that God will do this. Number one, relieve you from your insecurity. Number two, be the source and the strength of your well-being. And then number three, help you walk through these times of hardship by helping you see Him at work in your life and in the lives of others of others instead of becoming territorial when threatened may you experience the freedom the liberty of seeing like god of being used by god of being upheld by god because you trust in god well with that let's move forward together